Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So, take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, guys and girls. The program you are about to hear will be both fun and educational, but it is not a substitute for medical advice. Although we are doctors, we are not your doctors. Hello and welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. J. I'm dying. I'm Dr. Santosh, by the way. Are you dying because I've threatened to kill you all day unless we sat down to record? You threatened to kill me several days in a row. No. So, listening audience, we are here bringing a holiday episode to you in spite of Dr. Santosh's ill health <laughs> and my holiday neuroses <laughs> over time. You're, you're not feeling too hot either, huh? You, got, you caught a little bit of something? I, I did. Yeah. Uh, a little something snuck down the chimney. <laughs> and, and Tis the season to be snotty. So I hope everybody remembered to get their flu vaccinations. Yes, please do. This, but, this actually isn't the flu. This is a man cold, also known as a cold. Let's continue <coughs> as both of us are on our deathbeds. <laughs> I genuinely, I heard the pause for a second and I thought, I was like, yo, here's, here comes the <coughs> condescension. Here comes the, you know, buck up, you so-and-so. And then, <laughs> nope. So we are continuing with our 12 days of Christmas series. I think thus far we've covered about four days so far. So we've got our next two tonight in the episode entitled 12 Days of Christmas, Mary (laughs) Gilvermer. That was very like if Mortal Kombat was at the nativity. So tonight, both our medical topics are going to be related to the nativity, at least tangentially. So let's talk about the Virgin Mary, both the virgin birth and the immaculate conception, because there's some really cool stuff 
I've seen come up in the news lately. And just for those of you who are not particularly religious or not up on your theology, let me briefly cover these concepts before we go into science to take them apart. Yeah. There are two parts of Mary being the mother of Jesus. One is known as the Immaculate Conception. Mary's mom and dad, when they boned, they made a, a sinless baby. The idea being that every human since the time of Adam and Eve, when Eve ate the apple, has carried yes. that burden of the original sin. So even <laughs> though we're largely innocent yeah, when born, uh, we have the sin of humanity. Man. Presumably, the virgin mother presumably still got it on with her husband before an angel came by and planted Jesus in there. Because uh, in the past, telling someone you were just magically pregnant by God may have been kosher. Yeah. But I yeah, don't know how that would might, play out uh, today. They might use some uh, choice Anglo-Saxon words. So that's the Immaculate Conception. The virgin birth is the idea that even though Mary and Joseph were probably having relations on the regular, seeing as how Netflix didn't <laughs> exist in those days, all yeah. you had to do was chill. The idea being that... It was not, Jesus was not Joseph's baby. It was just a baby delivered Amazon Prime style direct yeah, from God to Mary's like, womb. Like uh, drone delivery, which I still haven't seen. We're going to talk about a study today or a successful surgical procedure that very closely parallels that, uh, <laughs> or at least for metaphorical purposes of this podcast. And that, of course is the first successful birth from a uterine transplant, meaning there is a mother who gave birth to a baby yeah, from a so uterus cool. not her own. So, you know, th there's a lot of women out there who, for one reason or another, can't carry a child. And, you know, it isn't fair. It isn't nice. And, Josh, the coolest part about this, like, even, you know, so, like, we're talking about, like, resurrections and stuff later on. This uterus was a deceased donor. <laughs> so it came from a dead person. They took the uterus out and then they put it into the woman. And, you know, it's a, it's a transplant. So they had to do immunosuppression and all this other stuff. And then, but she was able to conceive and carry the baby to term and then give birth. Which means this baby was the world's youngest <laughs> it Airbnb was, it was resident. was a womb without a view. Because wombs don't really have a view. So the mother needed this because she was actually born without a uterus. Oh, We're actually okay, talking okay. about two different uterine transplants, Santosh. So the one you're think the one you're talking about with the deceased donor uterus happened in uh, Sweden, I believe, and we'll talk about that. But this one that first came across my desk received the transplant from a living donor last year at oh, Baylor okay, University in dallas she had a baby boy there last month now since 2014 eight babies in total have been born to women who had uterus transplants all of them in sweden at the salgrenska nice. university okay. hospital so, in gothenburg um, uh, now this is not the first uterine transplant performed in the u.s because the cleveland clinic did that in 2016 but it failed after two weeks because of a transplant-related infection that required emergency surgery to remove the organ. So that one was not able to have any kind of fetus implanted in it, but this one was. So that's what I'm talking about very briefly today, what was involved in this donated uterus. 
that is kind of serving as a surrogate mother inside the actual mother. Meaning this baby, which was hers, it was from her egg. Uh, well, oh. actually, what? You know what? That's actually a really good point, Santos. I if she didn't have a uterus, did she have fallopian did. tubes? Uh, I, I actually have to look at the data again, the, the report. I believe that in this particular case, uh, fallopian tubes and ovaries were not transplanted, that those were her own. Okay, so then it was her child, not in her uterus, but still in her body. So that, of course, got me thinking during the holiday season of a immaculate conception. This baby was born right. despite the oh, lack yeah. of an original uterus. How does a uterine transplant work? Because we do a lot of transplant surgeries these days, but the uterus is not a organ that people need to live. And in fact, many people have it taken out when they have reached what they determine is their child's <laughs> I, like, I, I think I'm done pushing small humans through this human hole. The actual surgery itself, and you know, a lot of this data comes from this Sweden Salgrenska hospital, uh, donors under donors, so the people giving the uterus up, undergo a five-hour operation that is more complex than a liver transplant, which is one of the most difficult transplants to do today, uh, with the only one more tricky being a heart transplant. And they take out much more tissue than a standard hysterectomy because they have to remove the uterus as well as all the collateral nerves and blood supplies because <laughs> those have to be transplanted in. Because you're not just taking right. it out and tossing it in the recycling bin. You've got to take it out and put it into somebody. Now, these transplants are meant to be temporary. So it's not like, here's your new uterus. Here's the owner's manual. Here's the you know warranty. Bring it back. If you experience any dysfunction, these transplants are only being put in place just long enough for a woman to have one or two children, and then it is removed again so she can stop taking the immune-suppressing drugs needed to prevent organ rejection. Because being on any kind of organ transplant medications lowers your whole immune system. It opens you up to being at risk for a whole bunch of infections right. that the uterus people is, not um, on a little bit of a drugs organ are safe from. It, with respect to this, it's open to the environment, right? So if there's inflammation, if the mucosal barrier breaks down in any way because there's rejection or graft versus host or anything like this, then the you're basically opening up the body to all of these horrible bacteria and everything that can ascend and kill the person. So, you know, this is not like an enclosed organ, for instance, like a heart or a liver um, that's not exposed to the external environment. Therefore, if you have inflammation from graft rejection or something like this, you know, the consequences are not as high. Before the uterine transplant happened, and the reason these women can conceive is they actually use in vitro fertilization. So they harvest the eggs and then do in vitro fertilization. And then after the uterus is kind of stable, has been transplanted, then they actually implant the embryos. This is as close to a medical miracle, I think, as we can describe. Every single one of these pregnancies is considered high risk, and the babies have to be delivered by cesarean section to avoid putting undue strain on the transplanted uterus. Because remember, you're taking immunosuppressant drugs to prevent the body from attacking the uterus, and the last thing you need is 
an organ that is trying to stay under the radar, so to speak, getting bigger and bigger because there's a living thing growing in it. And you have to give increasing doses of immunosuppressant drugs. So the sheer amount of calculations and science in this boggles the mind. Every one of the births, and remember, we're talking about a total of about nine babies uh, since this has been discovered, have occurred norm earlier than the normal 40 weeks right. of gestation. So, so these have all been preemies, preacher. but not by much, about 32 to 36 weeks. Before the transplant, women are given hormone treatments to make their ovaries release multiple eggs, which are then harvested, fertilized, and frozen. If you would like to learn more about in vitro fertilization, we do have a previous episode, which I will link to in the show notes, all about in vitro fertilization, where we had a wonderful expert and friend. But I really love the social aspects of it and you know a little bit of the the monetary aspect as well uh it was it was a cool episode to do and it was a fantastic guest one of the unique things about the texas transplant is the timing all of the previous teams made the women wait for a year after having the uterus transplanted and being on all these anti-rejection drugs and extra medications you had to wait a full year before you could start trying to get pregnant through in vitro fertilization and all the related surgery. The Texas team only had them on for about six months, and they said, let's lower the risks of being on all these immunosuppressant drugs. We think once we've watched you post-op for a month or two, you are physically recovered to start getting your body in shape to carry a pregnancy. After another two months, now we can start getting you on the different hormones and immunosuppressant drugs. And then at the six-month period, go ahead. Let's see if we can put a baby in. It is speeding the process up, which does, in fact, drop the cost. This is still going to be outside the price range for the vast majority of the population. But as it continues to get more and more improved, we now have another organ that we can all swap among each other. So hearts, lungs, livers, kidneys, and now uteri. Uter us, Marge, not uter you. All of this talking about uterine transplants ignores the fact of how does one have a birth that only involves one person as opposed to the it takes two to tango. And that brings us to something not seen in humans, but seen extensively through the animal kingdom. And I've been referencing a lot of animal kingdom stuff lately. Uh, So Santosh essentially means... In a creature that usually reproduces by sexual reproduction. So there's a lot of animals that, in fact, don't use sexual reproduction. If they normally require or use sexual reproduction, animal does not have sex, and instead uses something like two eggs fusing uh, or other stem cells to actually fertilize, you know, within one animal and then giving birth. So this is literally the scientific explanation of a virgin birth. There are animals that can switch sex. If, uh, you know, the the famous one is I love to ruin uh, Finding Nemo (laughs) because clownfish do this. If there are no male, if there are no females (laughs) around, Males can convert to females. So in Finding Nemo, that daddy, when the mommy died, should have become the mommy. And then uh, they're attracted another mate. Uh, so that's that's a different thing. Those guys actually undergo sexual reproduction. In this case, there is no sex whatsoever. 
Um, so there's a formation of an embryo without fertilization. But all of that talk about Mary was just to give me an excuse to dig deep into the medical aspects of the three gifts she received, which, of course, as we all know, are gold, Frankenstein. (laughs) No, no, no. Gold, frankincense. What's that? Oh, it's a poison bomb. Get that out of here. That's a dangerous creature. I thought it was... uh, No, 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 no. I mean like an ointment. Those of you of a certain generation will recall a comedy troupe known as Monty Python, and they made a movie called Life of Brian, which was all about the almost prophet <laughs> Brian who was born in the manger directly next to Jesus. And the film and the film opens with the three wise men uh, showing up at the wrong manger and delivering gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh <laughs> to a very confused but appreciative uh, mother. I say that to Dr. Josh sometimes. You've gone one manger too far, Josh. <laughs> so i feel like we all know what gold is and we'll talk very briefly about the medical benefits and uses of gold but before we get into that santosh do you know what frankincense (laughs) and myrrh are you know aside from a bomb or an ointment or some kind of small animal like you burn incense in order to uh, you know, make the room smell good. But frankincense uh, and myrrh, I, I believe they're like plants. Is that right? They're like a, a, a plant-derived medicinal something or other? Yeah. So frankincense and myrrh are actually both from the same plant family, uh, Berseraceae. And they grow as small, shrub-like, thorny trees in dry climates such as India, hey. Oman, Ethiopia, Somalia, Yemen, and that's Saudi all, so Arabia. That's the we three you're going to hear a Orient lot land. about Saudi Arabia. So that, that's why they brought that stuff with them. Oh, sweet. Awesome. So, and in fact, Santa, we'll get into this. Myrrh is used a lot in Ayurvedic <laughs> hey, medicine. So Orient it probably land. was that's your people awesome. who brought that as a gift. When these shrub like trees are wounded down to the sapwood, meaning the thinnest layer of tree skin, the leaking resin or sap is allowed to harden. It's scraped off the trunk in these tear-shaped droplets so you can make trees cry. And then it's used in its either its dried form or it's steamed to become essential oils. Both frankincense and myrrh are edible. They can be chewed like gum. They're fragrant and can be burned. And they've both been used medically for over 5,000 years. Myrrh oil served as a rejuvenating facial treatment while frankincense was charred and ground into a powder and used to help make the heavy eyeliners you see in every stereotypical ancient Egyptian. (laughs) So frankincense was used to help make coal, which is the name of that eyeliner the Egyptians wore. And myrrh oil would be used as a facial treatment. So there's my ancient Egypt connection. Myrrh comes from the Comifora Makul tree. And has a natural, medicinal, like, bitter aroma. It's found in many, many skin creams, toothpaste, and cosmetic product, <laughs> products today. In ancient Decade, times, centuries, it was used to preserve sure. mummies. Okay, right. So it's really good for skin. It took care of them for years. It also has some very light antibiotic properties and could be was used as a remedy for infections back in the day, ranging from leprosy to syphilis, and was also recommended by herbalists for relief from bad breath 
and dental conditions. So we're going to talk about the evidence. So these are all the claims, but I actually have evidence and studies to back a lot of these <laughs> up because I'm constantly trying to just get Dr. Santos <laughs> to have a little faith in my scientific research abilities, <laughs> even true. though we uh, both so know that I am not like, a fan uh, of scientific research. I totally understand that. One day, I, I'm going to get to pipette in your hand. Myrrh has is claimed it can heal wounds, especially those of a weeping nature. It can treat skin diseases such as eczema and ringworm, soothes cracked and chapped skin, lips, scars. It's used in gum and mouth preparations to treat oral ulcers and bad breath. It stimulates uterine health and helps to normalize menstruation. It also relieves contractions or spasms. However, it can have toxic effects if used in excess, such as promoting uterine contractions leading to miscarriage. So it should be avoided during pregnancy due to its stimulating nature. Three main components of myrrh are the resin, the gum, and the oil. All three are thought to have different activities when used for herbal medicine. The resin has been shown to kill microbes and stimulate macrophage, which is a kind of white blood cell. And this has been done in several test tube studies. It also has a very astringent soothing effect on inflamed tissues in the mouth and throat. So the moist mucosa. And there are still a lot of ongoing studies on anti-cancer and anesthesia or pain relieving actions of the resin. Right now in the U.S., we're really lacking clinical trials or human clinical trials to confirm or deny most of these. But in Saudi Arabia, they've used myrrh as a treatment for many, many centuries. So there's a little bit more of a robust scientific body of literature in the Orient, but not as much here. Yeah, it's not out of the United States or a Western European country. Uh, Scandinavia is a good example of we you know we trust a lot of studies coming out of there the truth of the matter is these are places where our uh kind of ethics boards and uh you know along with the fact that you can communicate very very frequently in english uh you know it communicates very very well so you can say oh okay these are our rules for scientific publishing and our data and everything else and so the language barrier is down, the cultural barrier is down, and so we accept a lot of that. But when data comes out of the continent of Africa or, you know, India or Orient land, Russia, uh, you know, South America even, um, a lot of the time it's a sad truth that uh, some of that data is not given the respect that it deserves. So all of the studies I'm now going to talk about come from non-US trials. And we will and they'll all be linked in the show notes as always. So we're just going to do the quick yeah, and dirty version of some of the things that have been demonstrated to be use useful for frankincense and myrrh. So, study number 1, in a preliminary trial, patients with schistosomiasis, which is a parasitic infection, were treated with a combination of resin and oil of myrrh in the amount of 10 milligrams for every 2.2 pounds or kilogram of body weight per day for three days. Okay. Just that. They didn't get other antibiotics. They just got this weight-based myrrh dosing. The cure rate 
Now, granted, it was a very small trial, so there was not a high number of patients treated, but the cure rate was 91.7%. And of those who did not respond during the initial trial, 76% of the remaining patients were cured by a second six-day or longer course yeah. of treatment. Uh, you know, artemisinin in plants were being used as antimalarials for the longest time. But, you know, it had to kind of be shown, proven scientifically that this would work. Schistosoma, uh, you know, which is uh, a, a little, you know, it's a little fluke, you know, although this study might be no fluke. In fact, uh, be killed by this, you know, certain concentration of the, the oil of myrrh. And, you know, you, it might be that you just have to extract the right compound and, and administer it. And boom, you know, you've got the same revolution in anti-malarials from a plant that you could do, you know, for schistosoma. So I'm really excited about this. The next one, frankincense. Also used frequently in the Orient as dietary supplements for patients with arthritis or inflammation and pain-related disorders. Now, that's even worked its way into the U.S. There have been several in vitro studies that have shown that the boswellic acids isolated from frankincense demonstrate immunomodulatory effects. So they've isolated the specific component of frankincense that works on inflammation, but we don't know the right <laughs> okay. dosing yet, which is why it's just being thrown in willy-nilly into dietary supplements until somebody hits on, oh, this seems to work. There were a bunch of in vitro studies, meaning they've demonstrated this to have a noticeable effect in a test oh, tube okay. or lab setting, well, but we have not been able to prove that yeah. same effect when tested in living, breathing, ambulating creatures. Okay. <laughs> in China... Frankincense and myrrh are often used together in the clinic to obtain a synergistic effect to both relieve pain and increase blood circulation, especially to treat inflammatory diseases like rheumatoid arthritis. Now, the mechanism of how this works has not been extensively studied. So in one particular study, they looked at adjuvant-induced arthritis in an immune-mediated rat model. Now, I know Santosh knows what all that means, but I'm going to save you the trouble of what will be a very detailed and good but long explanation from him and just tell you yeah. that they gave so what, a bunch of you, rats you with compromised immune systems like arthritic mice. drugs you have to have known mice to induce as a side effect arthritis. Which is a it's, a it's a mean thing to do. It's a cruel thing to do. But we have learned so much from this model, and we thank our little furry friends every day for their sacrifice. Yeah, so they gave all these mice arthritis. They put them in tiny little rocking chairs and set them up uh, with a lawn to yell at kids to get off of. And then they looked at things like the hind paw inflammation as well as the amount of inflammatory cytokines produced, meaning, you know, how, how strong was their arthritis before and after the myrrh? And the administration of combined frankincense and myrrh suppressed arthritic progression in rats far more effectively than a single drug treatment, meaning couldn't cure it because All rheumatoid right. arthritis okay. is not something we cure, couldn't reverse it, but did slow how fast it would advance its damage when given together. 
Uh, it is a very long paper, and there's a lot of details that those of you who you know get into this stuff will find interesting. But I'm going to be oh, perfectly honest with you. God. I got a little bit lost in the statistics <laughs> the and just went to look here. for my Come favorite value, which is the <laughs> P, uh, and that tells you is it statistically significant. As I said, there's not a lot of broad studies. So what I'm hitting you with is the shotgun approach showing you here are multiple studies that have right. all demonstrated uh, and, little you know, bits the, the of uh, remedies don't get the attention they need because it's a lot more exciting to produce a monoclonal antibody or a specific inhibitor. So I'd love to see these elevated to, uh, you know, human trials and see if we achieve uh, the same level of treatment that we do, you know, head to head against these other biologicals by objective measures. Moving on to the third study. So again, the second study, they induced arthritis in rats, then they gave them frankincense and myrrh, and they looked at measures of rat arthritis, which is their hind paws tend to become very, very gnarly and swollen. It's definitely better than nothing. But is it better than the treatments we currently offer? Well, we don't know. Moving on to the next study, one of the most common uh, countries where yeah. myrrh is used extensively, even still today, is Saudi Arabia. That's true. Yeah. No, what it means that is that this is something that should be properly and objectively examined. But at, at the same time, it doesn't mean that this remedy is not a good one. The, the answer is we don't know. Yeah. Right. Not everybody's grandmother is a reliable witness. So we mentioned one of the most common uses of myrrh is to improve the soreness, the healing, specifically on oral ulcer. This study from Saudi Arabia was meant to look at the effect of myrrh on wound healing, specifically in the oral mucosa, and they wanted to compare it to chlorhexidine and tetracycline-containing mouthwashes, which is what we give in the hospital currently, uh, to help promote wound healing in the mouth or sterilize prior to, you know, performing any kind of procedure. So wound healing in and of itself is a very complex process that the body undergoes to eliminate an injury and restore cellular and tissue structure. Not everybody has access to a full surgical team and silk and needles to close you up. Sometimes you just get a bandage and a prayer. So There's three distinct phases of wound healing, the inflammatory phase, the proliferative phase, and the remodeling phase. The inflammatory phase pulls all those cytokines and macrophage and all the cells that are going to help clean up those edges and kill off any foreign invaders in the area. Then you get things like fibroblasts, and then you get things like fibroblasts that come and build the framework for new tissue to be created and can also create the scars, and they proliferate to fill in all that area where you had a lesion or a wound. And finally, the remodeling phase where now that you have the structural framework in place, all the normal cells like the skin and the blood vessels that were injured and disappeared will now start coming back along that structural framework. So when they did this study, the remodeling stage in the MER group started about a week earlier than that in the control and chlorhexidine groups. It also demonstrated an equivalent 
immunomodulation phase, meaning it was progressed on target with all the existing treatments, and it showed an antibacterial and fungal response, or antifungal response, which means myrrh may be potentially useful in inducing wound healing and repair. So if you have somebody who has a diabetic foot infection or has had a massive surgery and you know you're you could be laid up for a while waiting for your wounds yeah. to close it's, before you uh, can even start participating you know, these with are physical therapy. Things, whether those days when you are alive or you're recovering from a condition or something like this are the best that they can be. So reducing things like hospitalization days or reducing time to recovery is a very very important goal. And if you find uh if you find something which is relatively non-toxic as far as we can tell, that you can add to existing therapies in order to hasten your recovery, all the better. This is this the other shoe. The other shoe is <laughs> dropping right now. You say that specifically, Santosh, <laughs> because it allows me to jump in with a, well, actually, and here's the problem, is in this... Ex- oh, no. Okay. All right. <laughs> In this exact same study, the prolonged use of myrrh induced severe combined chronic inflammation and necrosis of the tissue, which is meaning you could give myrrh and you'd see improved wound healing and faster wound healing up to a point. And after that point you would then see the tissue start okay. developing new wounds and losing that blood circulation, which was more likely than not the result of an overdose and toxicity or even uh, the creation of a allergic response or antibody reaction or uh, to the myrrh. So what we can determine from this particular study that the healing gotcha. and repair of damaged tissue through the use of myrrh is limited to a short period of time in a low concentration. So this can kind of help get the ball rolling, but it should not be used by itself and it should not be used with no endpoint. The reason I bring this up is myrrh is in pretty much every single mouthwash sold in Saudi Arabia (laughs) as a topical remedy. Utilizing something in a medical way, then you do have to take this into account. And uh, I'm I'm actually, believe it or not, Josh, I'm actually a little bit glad to see this because there's a lot of people out there, maybe even some of our listeners who are like, oh, it's natural. It's going to be fine. It works great. It's natural. And it's super, super safe. No, that's not true. Not even by a little bit. You know what else is all natural? I'm very glad to see a useful application, a therapeutic window, and what happens if you overstep that therapeutic window and you step into toxicity. That's that's a very good pattern. More more research required before this can be safely used. So... For our listeners in Saudi Arabia who commonly use myrrh in high concentrations on open wounds, stop it. The last one, which covers the other thing we were talking about, is a study carried out by Chinese researchers were looking, rather than cuts on the mouth and wound healing, they wanted to know, could myrrh be used as a cancer treatment? So they looked at resin from myrrh. Uh, and how effective it would be against human gynecologic cancer cells. So remember, we started this episode talking about a transplanted uterus, 
And we're going to end talking about a cancerous <laughs> one. Uh, put it mildly. And they did not, find that hey, Murd does have, better, because of the these way. same highly toxic on open wounds properties, those can then be adapted on a micro scale to actually help kill cancer cells. Now, again, this was a very small study, and my ability to read Mandarin is somewhat lacking. Gotcha. Uh, which means I can speak Mandarin, but not very well. Reading it is next to impossible. Okay, so, okay sure. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Now, some women use myrrh oil during childbirth in order to lessen labor pain, in order to lessen labor pains, which was an old practice that was exclusive for Chinese royalty. Now, this makes sense if it can stimulate uterine contraction, because if you're stimulating contraction, it is much easier to have a labor. Myrrh, as we know, also stimulates uh, more, uterine bleeding, more, which is why it was used by women in more, China more to bleeding? enhance blood Should flow during bleeding. the early days of their periods, but also yeah. carried a risk of being an abortifacient or causing miscarriages. Oh, that's kind of interesting. Okay, so it probably has some effect on vitamin K pathways or something like that. Oddly enough, Santosh, I thought this was really neat. If you take myrrh with warfarin, which is a well-known blood thinner... More, more bleeding? Should be more bleeding. That's what you'd expect. But in fact, myrrh counteracts warfarin, and instead of more bleeding, you get less bleeding. Oh, that's kind of interesting. Okay, so it probably has some effect on vitamin K pathways or something like that. Yep, because taking myrrh with warfarin decreases the action of warfarin and increases the chance of blood clotting. Oh, that's interesting. So you actually have like competitive inhibition. That's kind of, it's interesting. That's cool. And to any medical professional listening, this is a very counterintuitive thought, uh, which is why we're so fascinated by it. And most uh, of the rest of you are probably not going to care. Yeah. Let's go to gold briefly. And then I have a very special just the tip. Uh, Santosh, how is gold used aside from purchasing all these expensive medical treatments that the Magi brought? One of the most common ones, even today is gold sodium thiomalate. Uh, this is used for rheumatoid arthritis and you can give it intramuscularly and it's a gold uh, sulfur compound. Uh, and it, you, you utilize the anti-inflammatory uh, kind of action of the gold uh, in order to treat your rheumatoid arthritis, which is inflammation in the joints. Um, now, it's, it's kind of a quote-unquote dirty drug. It acts very, very broadly. Um, and you can actually get hypersensitivity. You can get problems with uh, your uh, you know, blood cells going a little haywire. Uh, you can get dermatitis secondary to it. So it's not very commonly used, but it's kind of a reserve therapy uh, when, you know, there's failure with, uh, with other treatment modalities. Now that you've heard the responsible use of gold, uh, I'm going to tell you about one which is also very extensively used, but I'm going to tell you about it in the most immature way possible. Oh, God. Okay. <laughs> gold is also used, uh, a lot more often than you would think in cancer treatment and specifically in below the belt cancers. So it is a component of 
many chemotherapies for bladder cancer, such as cisplatin, (laughs) whose chemical formula contains platinum and gold. And unfortunately, like many cancer drugs, the drug kills healthy cells along with cancer ones. But one promising breakthrough is the use of gold nanoparticles. Because gold is biocompatible, meaning it doesn't provoke an autoimmune reaction in people, mostly, you can inject... Yeah, mostly. Uh, You can inject nanoparticles into somebody's veins and they will naturally accumulate in specific areas where there is high blood flow or leaking blood channels, which would be tumors. Yeah, tumors are are very leaky. Uh, They tend to neovascularize, which means they build its own blood supply, but the blood supply that it builds up is very disorganized and it's it's kind of like loose fit plumbing it's just thrown together now one of the nicest things about the fact that they collect in these areas around the tumor is that the position of the gold grains can then be detected using x-rays because gold will show up on x-rays which allow doctors to target any tumor within one or two millimeters now, as I said, gold is mostly used for below-the-belt cancers. One of the most common is prostate cancer. So you are actually putting little golden nuggets into people's asses and reverse prospecting to find the tumor in what is known as uh, tuchus spelunking. No, it's never called that. It's never once been called that ever. Ever! <laughs> <laughs> no. So... How about how about reverse prospecting? <laughs> Can we call it reverse prospecting? Oh god. Cuz you're inserting yeah, gold, I, you're inserting no gold point. instead of digging it out. You're not there's no way this is going to make it outside of this podcast. This is <laughs> Listening audience, I encourage you to start using the term reverse prospecting for the use of gold when treating prostate cancer. I've got no myrrh to say about the gifts of the Magi. (laughs) But I will tell you about a upcoming Just the Tip, because I will be taking... I'm going to go up to Fairbanks, Alaska soon, which has both a lovely view of the Aurora Borealis from the non-continental United States as well as the Santa Claus house. That's right. I'm taking a Christmas trip to the North Pole. Fulfilling so many childhood fantasies right now. Inside the world-famous Santa Claus house, there is exclusive North Pole apparel, (laughs) collectibles, and Alaskan (laughs) handicrafts, along with fudge, coffee, cookies, all of those treats. And you can have a Santa's sleigh where there is the world's largest Santa. And those of you who have ever met me in real life know I love visiting world's largest things. Like there is some deep, tiny piece of my soul that will not feel complete until I have seen the largest everything from rocking chair to ball of yarn, Cheeto to potato, lint to rabbit, and now the world's largest Santa standing nearly 50 and this is one of these reasons why i can still get you to visit you know the the rural midwest as much as you like to go because as much as you bag on iowa you've got to see the you know the corn palace 
and you know giant corn cobs and whatever, and then make your way over to what is it, Kansas for the giant rocking chair? <laughs> yeah, so you and Nebraska has the world's largest couch potatoes, which is just a large couch with three inflatable potatoes on it. So I'm really excited, although I have been warned that there's going to be about a two to three hour wait to see Santa in the final weeks before Christmas. So you are supposed to arrive earlier in the day. Uh, so there is your trip there. The North Pole and the Santa Claus house is up in Alaska. And it is within reachable distance from Fairbanks. So happy holidays. We will return next week with yet another of our 12 Days of Christmas episodes. We've still got a few really fun topics to cover. And if you're missing us in that holiday break, go ahead and listen to last year's uh, very rapidly released 12 Days of Christmas series, where one of my favorite episodes talked about what exactly does Tiny Tim have? <laughs> oh, that is that is important. Yeah, this is like a one of your favorite like historical slash mythological uh you know, or, or fictional kind of things is it like can we can we diagnose dracula can we diagnose the wolfman and can we diagnose tiny tim not that tiny tim is a monster okay this this broke down i think what santosh is trying to say is that we really enjoy diagnosing fictional characters and if you have a fictional character you would like us to evaluate and diagnose go ahead and leave us a comment question or review on our facebook squarespace twitter or any of those places because folks that's it for this week As always, we'd love to hear your comments, questions, and feedback. If you'd like to support us spiritually, emotionally, or financially, you can do that by following the links in the show notes or by writing reviews for us on wherever you obtain your podcast. It helps other people find the show, and it would just be a delightful Christmas gift. Um, Our theme music is composed by Rachel Leisure. This show is produced by me with a lot of help from Santosh and our other co-hosts. And until next time, as always, happy travels and happy holidays. No, no lollipop.